the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. This is the wilderness that Dave and I were both introduced to as kids. You know, our first wilderness camping experience we were in the Boundary Waters. And in summer, you wake up, you swim through the lake, you have breakfast, then you can relax, you can go paddling, you can go hiking. We've done this trip before to Horseshoe Lake, and I remember catching walleye there before. I went on a canoe trip in the Boundary Waters, and it's, it was really cool. It was my first time. The route from Ram Lake back to Poplar Lake with, with no packs, with, with only a day pack, uh, we take it in one day. Well, you can look to Venus, you can look to Mars. I will set my sights by the northern star and in the deep dark blue. Oh, and in the deep dark blue come the northern light. Welcome to episode 96 of the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. I'm looking across the table at Matthew Baxley. It's like a mirror, but I'm seeing Joe Fredericks. <laughs> <laughs> it's going just. It's August. Things are really moving along, not necessarily in a bad way, but really fast. Yeah, and I'm sitting up here wondering, is everybody's worlds everywhere going fast, or is it just us? I think that's a general vibe around the Gunflint Trail, talking with some outfitters recently, like, yeah, summer, busy, fast, almost over. Yeah, it's going quick. I actually found myself this morning thinking about ice skating, which is really strange. I got a new auger in the mail. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. All nil, right. One of those nils that you, you know, use both hands like this. I got it. It came. Congratulations. I'm ready for ice fishing. Well, you know, I think it's important to just be really clear that I'm not eager for this open water season to be over. I'm, you know, I swam six times in the last three days. Nice. So I, I'm not eager for that to end, but it's, uh, that interesting progression of being present and looking ahead mm-hmm. at what's around the corner. Cause there's always something to be excited about now and in the future. You know, I'm looking forward to our next big adventure, which we've got some things on the horizon, but none of what we are planning can even hold a candle to some of the adventures we're going to hear on today's episode. Absolutely. Paddler profile is back with, Jason Zaborski. So it's the spring of 2013, and I remember sitting in the front of the shop looking at the map wall, and I was thinking about what I was going to do for my personal trip come October, once the the canoe season ended, and uh, I was able to get out there and uh, do a personal trip. I was looking up at the map wall, and I was looking at all these places I'd been, all these canoe routes I'd been in the BWCA and in Quetico, and I I wanted to see something new, and I wasn't finding much that inspired me as far as canoe routes that I hadn't already seen. And I was looking up at the map wall, and I sort of had this epiphany. I was like, there's a ton I haven't seen. It's all that territory between the blue. Off the lakes and off the portage trails and away from the campsites, 
that is territory where nobody ever goes. You know, we have quite a few people coming to the Boundary Waters every year, right? But they all stay on the lakes, on the water, at the campsites, on the Portage Trail. As soon as you go 150 feet away from any of those things, it is wild country. If you duck behind the trees, it is a place where humans don't stay and they don't travel much at all. And it is kind of this kingdom of of all the critters and and all the trees and all the just wildlife and nature and no people. <laughs> so I, I hatched this idea that I was gonna walk and swim from Atacokan, Ontario back to Ely. I'm Jason Zaborski. I live in Ely and I first guided in the Boundary Waters in the summer of 1997. It's a summer that changed my life and set me on track to being a, a wilderness guide and a wilderness outfitter and, and uh, having sort of a lifelong love affair with the Boundary Waters. You may know Jason through his outfitter in Ely or through his advocacy work to protect the Boundary Waters. Maybe you met him out and about in the Ely community or in the larger paddling community. If you were paying attention to any outdoor news in 2013, you probably heard about the guy who traveled from Atacokan, Ontario to Ely, Minnesota. On foot. That's right. Jason crossed Quetico and the BWCA on a solo trip like no other. But we'll get to more of that later. What I wanted to know is how Jason found his way from Iowa to BWCA in the first place. And how did he accumulate so much skill and confidence to eventually take on this trip? Here's Jason talking about the early days. My very first trip in the Boundary Waters was staff training, uh, working for a little outfitter off the Gunflint Trail. We put in at Seagull Lake. It was before uh, the fires and before blowdown. Uh, I remember paddling out there and feeling like it was the land before time with these towering pine trees and these big cliffs and just the sparkling water. It was uh, just something that really touched me and moved me and made me feel very, very connected to the place. At the time, I felt like I was a really late bloomer because, you know, I felt so old being 22. <laughs> like So much of life had passed me by. And yet I had not experienced the Boundary Waters yet. But back when I was a sophomore in college, I went to a summer job fair. And there was a guy interviewing for summer guide staff positions at Wilderness Canoe Base at the end of the Gunflint Trail. And I talked to him, and I thought it sounded like just about the best job ever. Unfortunately... I couldn't do uh, do it that summer, or the summer after that, or the summer after that. But the summer after that, I was available. Oh. And so I'd kept his name, Jim Wienanen, and uh, kept his number. And so four years later in January, 
I was giving him a call and saying, hey, you probably don't remember me, but uh, four years ago, I met you at Luther College, and I'd sure like to be a part of what you got going on. And he said, that's great. And then there was a bit of a pause, and he said, but unfortunately, we're fully staffed up for the summer. And then there was another pause, and then he says, but some folks who used to guide here are now running another place down the trail, and I think they're looking for guide staff. So he gave me their name and number, and I gave them a buzz, and the rest is history. They're the ones who, who taught me from scratch. And um, it's interesting because although I grew up on the water, I grew up in in Iowa on the banks of the Wapsipinicon River. I was constantly on the water, fishing and boating and swimming and canoeing, but but I didn't really know the Boundary Waters wilderness tripping. So I was putty in their hands and we did that first eight-day trip, the staff training trip, and I, I was absorbing everything I could learn about how to do wilderness tripping and how to travel in the Boundary Waters. And they were uh, just amazingly impactful for introducing me to the place and helping me understand how to experience it. At the end of the summer, as I was driving south, leaving the Boundary Waters, I basically already missed it. Uh, I felt like I was already longing for it and I wanted to just turn around and go back as I was driving away. But I was like, ah, maybe that's just because it was a, a fun experience and, and vacations or type experiences are a lot of fun. So it took me a while. I did some other things. I was on track to do grad school and I'd already deferred a year and they weren't going to let me defer another year if I didn't, go to, <laughs> if I didn't show up at the end of August. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to be responsible and I'm going to do, uh, do law school and I'll be happy coming up for a week trip in the spring and a week trip in the fall. And, uh, and I tried that <laughs> through grad school. And I tried that for about four years after grad school and then just decided that wasn't enough and I needed to be closer to the Boundary Waters. So I quit my job and I sold my house and I moved a little old Ely, Minnesota, um, not necessarily because I, I thought I was going to be a wilderness guide and outfitter, but I was going to take my sort of transferable skills of practicing law and work in a law firm in northeastern Minnesota, probably Duluth because Duluth had larger law firms that did the sort of things I was doing when I was practicing for four years after grad school. But here I am in Ely, studying for the Minnesota-specific part of the bar exam, and uh, I get a call uh, from Russ and Kathleen on the Gunflint Trail, who say, hey, Jason, you're in Ely. You've got to meet this Paul Shirky fella. He's doing dog sledding trips over there, and you would love it. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. So I thought maybe I could do both. Um, so I gave him a buzz, and unbeknownst to me, Paul's always fully staffed, and there are people waiting in line to, to guide for him. And I, I gave him a buzz, and he invited me out, and I remember it was actually December, and it was a 50 below morning. My car would not start, 
um, to go out for my interview at the Dogshood Lodge. So I got a little camp stove out and started heating up the oil pan underneath my engine and put a put a blanket over the over the hood. And the car started, and I got out there and met Paul at Wintergreen Dogshood Lodge. And uh, unbeknownst to me, one of his full-time, full-season guides had just shattered his femur on the staff training trip. And so, incredibly, Paul was down one full-time, full-season guide. And there I was, knocking at his door with my outdoor resume, telling him I'd like to be a part of what he had going any way I could. After chatting up with him a little bit and learning a little bit about the place, he said, I could feel free to come back tomorrow. And I did, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And 10 years later, I found myself still guiding dog sled trips in the winter after being completely and totally enamored by kind of the adventure of, of dog sledding around northeastern Minnesota and, and doing some adventurous dog sledding stuff in, in the Rocky Mountains and Hudson Bay and Svalbard and kind of exotic places like that. And meeting some really amazing people along the way. Um, we're part of that guide staff. Yeah, fun and dicey. You know, it's it's a lot of type two fun, right? Like it's not it's not just sitting on a beach type fun. It is, uh, you know, sometimes when the adventure happens and things go a little further south is when kind of the fun meter still ramps up along the way, or at least becomes some of the most memorable trips. There were several. You know, there was dog sledding in Svalbard, north of the Arctic Circle. Um, we were just checking out a route, going from the west coast, dog sledding over to the east coast, and then up north up the coast, and then back to the west coast, which ended up being a particularly sort of oddly epic trip with weird weather like the folks had never seen in living history in Svalbard, which was a heat wave that, that arrived while we were on trail on the east coast. We had perfect snowy ice conditions, and as we were coming back from the East Coast, um, there's dramatic heat wave. There were um, mountains surrounding these big valleys. Um, everything had been covered in snow. Uh, we went to the East, but when we came back, the heat wave had caused the snow to melt on the mountains and flooded the entire main valley. So we thought at the end we were gonna have this cruisy return home, but instead our route was flooded. And so we had to go on the sides of the mountains and then we had to take the dog teams and dog sleds across icy glacial runoff torrents. And it was a blast. <laughs> when the unexpected happens, the team comes together and you get through it and you smile about it later and laugh about it later and and uh, it doesn't too quickly kind of melt out of your memory. But to many people, to go north means to find adventure and, you know, Ely is about as far north as you can go in the lower 48 and have the boreal forest and that kind of rugged wilderness that we are so fortunate to have. 
and uh, right, I think it is uh, something that people find as as inspiration for more. It's been said before that this region is a destination experience for people all over the country. But for certain folks that call this wilderness home, it's the training ground for bigger and more epic adventures. For Jason, this couldn't be more true. Here he is talking about his preparation for the walk across the wilderness. I spent the summer just poring over maps, doing research, testing systems, uh, and planning. I had a few friends who were going to join me, so it wasn't originally a solo trip, but uh, about a month before, it just didn't work for any of the three of them to join me on it. So I had a moment to think, hey, is this something that's wise to do solo? Or should I scrap it? And I decided I'm too vested. I've <laughs> my head's in it. So so I had a friend uh, drop me off north of uh, Quetico, and I basically took a straight line, uh, walking off trail alone through the woods. And when I got to lakes, I put on a an ultralight dry suit, and I uh, stuffed my backpack into a a waterproof bag and I'd tether it to my wrist and I'd I'd swim across the lake. I did that for 14 days. I felt like uh, at the time I was in about the very best shape of my life because I've been training all summer for it and I spent a lot of time in the woods bushwhacking and anybody who's done any bushwhacking up here knows that it is really physical and it's really demanding and um, just not easy. <laughs> so fortunately, I was as ready as I could have ever been for it. I was young. I was 39 years old. It was pretty amazing to see behind the woods. I did learn it was October, so I was usually moving, and I'd be moving first thing, like 7 a.m., and because it got dark early, I was only able to go until maybe 5 so about 10 hour, um, 10 hour days. I had a wrist, uh, wristwatch style, just uh, a dial, magnetic dial, compass, and I just kept it pointed south. It was more of a, a meditative experience. As I was bushwhacking, I had to watch every single step I was taking. And I had to be careful with every single step because the woods are very slippery. It's so easy to fall by slipping or tripping or whatever. And uh, and there's so much kind of coming at you as you're, as you're bushwhacking that my mind actually went much more, most of the time, into a, a very, 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 very present place very present like all that mattered was what was around me and what really mattered was what was really close to me like literally underfoot and and just directly in front of me and I was constantly trying to scout out the path of least resistance ahead of me um, as I was moving through the woods so it didn't feel like it was my moment to have sort of the big picture 
life reflection. Uh, I think some of that did happen, but it, it happened in more short bursts. Um, most of my days were just very focused on precisely what was directly in front of me and directly underfoot. Yeah, it was very quieting. It's very quieting. It was almost like uh, like climbing a, a cliff, like a rock climber. I felt like like they get into that zone where you're you just have to 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 focus your mind to whatever your next move is, you know, wherever your next hold is. I took a couple of falls, just because you're gonna take a couple of falls if you're bushwhacking in the woods for two weeks. It, it there's just no way around it. Slippery and tripping. Um, and I fell pretty hard about once a day. And every time I was like, geez, Jason, be careful, be smart. You don't want to twist your ankle. You don't want to twist your knee. I took a solo tent. It was always not that easy to find a spot because it's rocky and there are trees and bushes and things. But I always found a spot. I just had a, I would just go as far as I could, typically. I wasn't, I wasn't set to say, hey, I have to do, you know, X number of miles today, X number of miles tomorrow. Uh, I would just go as long and, and kind of hard as I could. There were places I'd get to, and, you know, you hear stories of how Native people would use fire to manage the land, to keep the underbrush down and keep a big open room underneath the big pine trees. And I definitely came across some of those sorts of areas that were incredible to walk through. I mean, it was literally like, like people talk about the big old room under the giant white pines and red pines. The wide open understory that you can just kind of just walk through at will. And I found some of those for sure. Those were very special came across some cliffs that I was sort of scampering up, which that was slow. I came across some blowdown where literally all the trees were laid on their side like matchsticks. And imagine literally just crawling over horizontal trees for a good part of a day. So there's a little bit of everything. That's part of the joy of it, you know? Constant change and you never know what's gonna come around the corner. And I was in this, this spot um, where on the map I'd looked at it and I was just kind of boggled by it. It just looked like a huge bog, a huge bog, miles and miles and miles. I couldn't get my head around it on looking at the, the satellite imagery and the topo maps. I just couldn't get my head on exactly what was going on with it. I was slogging through this and it was a day, um, it started raining in the morning and it drizzled the entire day. And so I was pretty soaked. But the woods were very, very quiet because everything was so wet. You can, there were no leaves rustling or anything like that on the forest floor. Nothing was crunchy, everything was soft. <laughs> I remember coming up this little, little tiny lift um, into this little spit of dry ground or high ground above the swamp. And I heard this howling of a wolf and it was obviously a wolf pup, a very high pitched, like a little adorable <laughs> little wolf wolf pup howling in a pause, and then a much more obviously mature wolf nearby, but also in the distance, 
howled in response. And so I just stood there and I listened, and they howled back and forth several times, just communicating. And it, and it reminded me of guiding dog sled trips and at the, at the dog yard, these mournful howls that dogs sometimes make on rainy days, sort of a mournful howl in the, in the woods. I was there just kind of listening to that, and suddenly there was the largest ruckus crashing behind the woods, directly behind me. And I was so startled, I, I just felt fear. I don't feel fear in, in the Quetico Superior. I just don't feel fear when I'm out there. And I felt fear. And because I, I, I was so shocked, so I just kind of paused and held my breath. It was coming up behind me to my left. It was a bull moose chasing a cow moose. And the cow kept on going by. The bull stopped maybe 35 feet from me. A big rack. He uh, ran past me and when he stopped, he never turned his full head to look at me, but I remember his eyeball. His kind of giant eyeball and the way it just rotated in its eye socket and one eye looked back right at me. And he stared at me with his eye, not moving his head, but moving his eye back to me sort of over his shoulder to the right. And I just remember looking at him and thinking, this is his territory paused there and I just kind of savored the moment a little bit and then he nonchalantly walked ahead into the right and actually right oddly directly toward where the wolves were howling back and forth. That was just a moment when I thought you know this isn't my world this is their world and in the end I felt very fortunate to be able to visit it, be a small part of it. <laughs> I had a whole bunch of friends meet me on the edge of town and they walked down Sheridan Street with me and as kind of a kind of a a group <laughs> and walked down the sidewalk back to Ely Outfitting Company in downtown Ely, and uh, then there's a bigger group at the shop who were kind of waiting and kind of cheering for me as I arrived, which was, um, which is, it felt really wonderful to have that group of friends uh, here for me to welcome me back. I, I think a lot of them appreciated the concept of just getting out there and ex and ex exploring in a way that felt like real deal exploring in our own backyard. One of the criticisms I hear people say about the Boundary Waters is that um, that it's sort of a glorified state park, and I can tell you, once you get off the lakes and get off the portage trails and you get behind the trees and you're bushwhacking, I mean, it is as about as wild as it gets. 
it seems, particularly in mid-October, because I didn't see anyone for the entire time. I didn't even see a sign of anybody, like a tent in the distance or a canoe in the distance. I seldom saw lakes. I usually was just, you know, in the woods. I mean, I felt like I really had the opportunity to experience just a different sort of wildness that's out there, that's in the wilderness, than I'd, than it, than I'd felt in a while. You know, I think when I first started going to the Boundary Waters, I, 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 I wasn't as familiar with it. It felt like this really grand adventure of exploration and discovery. And it wasn't just about the place, it was about me, right? And after developing you know, more experience and more comfort level with the BWCA and Quetico and canoe tripping, I started losing some of that spark, some of that excitement. And that trip completely and totally reignited that. And just opened my eyes with that, kind of the wonder that comes along with wilderness. And we've got it right here. That's just a, it's amazing, amazing asset to explore and uh, discover it, discover yourself, and, and all sorts of good stuff. Yeah, it's pretty amazing how intertwined the Boundary Waters is with my life and has been for a long time. I feel lucky that way. Yeah, I think a lot of people have, you know, things in their life that sort of define them and make them who they are. And, you know, those who are lucky have, you know, really good experiences that, that define them. And uh, I'm just one of those lucky ones who have, you know, the really great experience of the Boundary Waters to, to help me define my life and, and set its course. So I just feel lucky that way. There's lots more to explore, for sure. I mean, you, you can spend an entire life exploring. You'll never, you'll never, you'll never see it all, for sure. We kind of go through life, and and life um, kind of develops and things. And I don't know. It is. It's interesting to see what the next step is at this point. You're still waiting to see. Always. <laughs> There's adventure on the horizon. Well said. I am often inspired when I get to sit down and talk with Jason and it's been a little while since I've been over to his office but I remember the first time you and I got to sit upstairs in Ely Outfitting and talk with Jason and how genuinely interested he is in you and what you're up to and Joe, what are you, what's the latest news around Grand Marais and the Gumplet? Matthew, what's, what are your projects? You know, we're on his turf. He's just a cool guy is basically what I'm getting at. I couldn't agree more. And I am really honored to call him my friend and a friend of ours. And I'm grateful he's part of this paddling community. Thanks, Jason. Thank we you, Jason. love you. <laughs> we love you, Jason. We love you. I just sing one 
when I paddle to noon. Feeling not thinking if the strokes are true. We're gonna get through to the other side. Out in the night, the waves beat the shore. You can hear them pounding, you can hear them roar.